0: Well, are you ready to gavel this order? Yeah, let's do it. All right, all right. Uh, Lewis Raymond Colker, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Um, I'm I've been following your your work online, sort of like a peeping tom or something, for the last couple of years, and and uh, you know, random comments on your playing, and and uh, but I never met you, and I and I would I had always been curious, sort of like he strikes me as someone who is sort of inhabiting a, a similar space that I felt like I was inhabiting when I was a student. Um, just like steel drums is the thing where you feel the most comfortable. Um, and I don't want to presume that about your, your playing on other instruments, but for me that was always my home base. And um, I kind of, before you know, I want to get into like what, what got baby, baby Lewis involved in, in music at all. But um, I'm, I'm curious first, what was your impetus for reaching out to, to do the podcast?
1: Um That's a good question. There's, I mean, it was like five things. It was like an atmosphere, you know. Mm. Um, Part of it is I saw your posts that were just like, I will talk to anyone. And Mm -mm. I was like, anyone, you know. (laughs) Part of it is I share your uh, frustrations with the limitations of social media to like Mm. actually talk to someone. Yeah. Um, I had been listening to a couple episodes. You posted some that I was just like, Oh, I really want to hear Gloria talk. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've just been like going down the feed a little bit. So like you're, you and the podcast were in my brain. Um, and then it's funny that you talk about like seeing my posts and like, just like having that one sided relationship. Mm -hmm. Cause I feel the same way towards you. Mm -hmm. as like, that guy's in so percussion. Like I know way more about him than he knows about me. Um, And then like, same thing, listening to your podcast, it's like, I've heard a lot of stories about his life and we have not talked and that's weird. So I should get to know this guy.
0: Well, I appreciate, I really do appreciate you reaching out. And, um, it's something I'm, I'm always surprised. I mean, I got, as I do that more and more, more folks are reaching out, which is a good thing, I think. Um, but, uh, I'm always curious why people, fewer people, people reach out than I imagine the number of people like participating in social media. I just assumed that more people would want to talk face to face. And it turns out that's maybe not, I mean, I understand some people are more comfortable with text. And as soon as you have your face and your voice and your tone and your intent and everything is captured on video, all of a sudden the the vibe is different, but I appreciate you reaching out. Um, Well, I want to, I want to talk with you a bit about your, like how you're studying in Trinidad or taking classes in Trinidad right now, which I think is one of the benefits of all of the remote teaching. I mean, yeah, for sure. Pre-COVID, you would have had to travel there to take those classes with Smooth Edwards and Sian Gomez and, and Mia but, uh, and Josh. But um, can you just back up and tell me a little bit about Baby Lewis? Like, what got you into music to begin with?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm the youngest of three. My I have two older siblings. Um, Joey is seven years older than me. Becca is four and a half years older. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time I was in elementary middle school, um, they were already in like middle school, high school. And where is this? Uh,
0: Don't if, sorry to interrupt, but where where sorry, where did you okay. grow up?
1: Austin, Texas. Okay. Um so like by the time I was a person with memory and mm-hmm. like could focus on the things around me, like I was going to high school football games and like hearing the marching band and like going to concerts. Um so my parents, neither of them are musicians, like Officially, Mm -hmm. but my dad really likes to dabble in piano. We have like a small, just upright piano in the house
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, that he would just like play stuff on. He really likes Bach and like Joni Mitchell. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then my mom is an aspiring amateur cellist, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but she just like jumps around between things so often that like she. Has never really had time to sit down and learn it.
0: What do they do professionally? I mean, what do they do for a living?
1: Yeah. Uh, so my dad is a lawyer mm-hmm. and like has been just like very steady, just like practices civil law um, and has been doing that. He and his partner just like have a firm and they've been doing that since forever, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a lawyer, took maternity leave when she was pregnant with me, didn't go back to being a lawyer, did grad school from. When I was in like, like five or six years old, Mm -hmm. until basically like through, I was in middle school. um, And did her master's and PhD kind of in anthropology and English and Mexican American studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And then co-founded a nonprofit um, that was like oral histories on people affected by the death penalty, so like Mm -hmm. families of like murder victims and families of people who had been executed and just like questions about justice. Mm. Um, And then she left that organization, taught at a few different universities um, and didn't really vibe with that. Just like politics of being an academic. Mm -hmm. Um, Got like certified again by the bar and has been and immigration lawyer for the mm. last I think like seven or eight years and is now like back in teaching. She's doing a couple classes at University of Texas, San mm. Antonio. Um, one of her grad school friends was just like, hey, we're looking for somebody. Can you come in and do this? So
0: oh, okay, awesome.
1: Yeah, when I say that she jumps around a lot, like her life is insane.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, I mean, that sounds all, that all sounds really interesting. And, and um, but like so so it sounds like you grew up in a in a musical household, but not like professionally musical.
1: Yeah. I grew up, grew up around like four people who all liked to play music and mm-hmm. didn't think they were going to do it professionally. Mm.
0: Well, was there, okay. So when did you actually, you, did you join marching band? Like how, what was your sort of music ed studies in Texas?
1: Yeah. I think like when I was in fourth grade, I was like, I want to play an instrument. And then I was like, I'm, I'm ready. I want to do this. And then after that, I after some negotiation I was like, I wanna do drums and because I'm the youngest of three, my parents are like, Okay, fine. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I think they had a rule when they were like having kids that were like, No drums, no no other things. Um and then by the time they had been parents for like twenty years or something, they're like, Okay, we can we can have drums, it's fine. Yeah, um, I mean
0: I'm not a parent, but what little I know of friends of mine who are I think you do you have rules you have things that you're like I'm not going to do this I'm never going to give my kid sugar you know something like that and then it's like <laughs> rules rules I think uh it's nice but it's I yeah. think you often end up breaking them as a parent as a teacher too I mean you there's things I okay. I or as a player I mean there are things as a student I was like I'm never going to do that here I am at 41 doing all of that and and having broken all my own rules
1: yeah um so I started on drum set then I did the like middle school band track. It was, like six through eight. Mm-hmm. Um, high school band, nine through 12. Um, and there I did like marching band. We did percussion ensemble, wind ensemble. Um, and then I got into steel band, like eighth grade at the middle school. There's just like a one semester elective you could take. What was the school? Uh, Keeling Middle School. Keeling. How do you spell it? Uh, K-E-A-L-I-N-G. Okay, <clears throat> Which I don't know if they still have that steel band running.
2: Uh-huh.
1: It's like the kind of deal where they have three band directors there and one of them each of them teaches like first, second or third band and then they all split up the beginner classes. Mm. Um, and the beginner percussion teacher was a horn player mm-hmm. and when she got hired they're like, Oh, you're also gonna teach a steel drum class so just like go to this community steel band and kinda learn what's up. Um, mm. And so that was Inside Out Steel Band with CJ. Ah,
0: oh, CJ Mangie. Mangie, am I pronouncing his last name?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and so she had that steel band class. I did one semester, like the beginning of eighth grade. Uh-huh. Um, and it was like a weird vibe because it was mostly people who were not involved in band. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like very beginnery. Um, very simple tunes. I think we played like sodanko Samba and Pixis. And what was the other one? Pixus oh. by CJ. Oh, okay, all right. Um, and then one day I was in wind ensemble, and CJ like came to our wind ensemble rehearsal at the beginning of class for five minutes to be like, "Hey, if there are any people who play pan, we're doing an after-school steel band for middle school students at the high school at McCallum High School."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'll be there uh, Matt Ayler's, the high school percussion director will be kind of in and out of those rehearsals and it's just like after school steel band thing you can do mm. and I remember being like the only person in the wind ensemble percussion section who was playing pan mm-hmm. and so one of my friends Taylor just like nudged me and she's like hey you should do this and I was like alright cool why not um, and that really like CJ is still like a close friend and mm-hmm. mentor and colleague
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so going to those rehearsals made me want to play pan and then I went to the high school and they have a really phenomenal steel band program there mm.
0: um, this is a McCallum high School
1: yeah okay so a lot of guest artists um, we did that at PASIC 2012 in Austin um, there is that like combined steel band. Mm-hmm. With North Texas, and then the UT um, like jazz ensemble, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then Andy and Mark Walker, um, and I think later.
0: Mm-hmm, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I know Relator works with Andy a bunch.
1: Yeah, um, and so like our high school steel band played in that group. Awesome. Yeah, which is like kind of unreal, and I'm still just like blown away that I was lucky enough to have that experience.
0: Yeah, um, I mean uh, as you're talking, I mean I'm I'm starting a podcast with um Yuko Asada. Do you know Yuko? Uh,
1: not well. I mean I've met her a couple times.
0: She's really great. I mean she she was uh she was married to Cliff Alexis and then he passed away. Um and she and Liam now run the pro co run the program at, at NIU and she and I um are are doing a podcast, starting a podcast actually today called Pan and Tune and it's Mainly, um, she and I talking to people from, like, we're not from the Caribbean culture. You know, I, I learned about steel drums from Joan Wenzel in Dover, Ohio, and she learned about it from Cliff. Um, that's who built all the drums that I played on in all through undergrad and, and my grad in my, my uh, yeah, my high school and undergrad at the University of Akron were all sort of Cliff pans and that sort of uh, ethos of teaching and and that sort of thing. Um, and Yuko of course was married to Cliff and, but you know, and there's a big steel band scene in Japan. And so we're, we're talking to folks from the Caribbean culture, sort of trying to, I mean, we're not trying to like fill any gaps, but just to be like, I think there's a bit of a disconnect between Trinidadian steel band culture and the steel band culture in the United States. I don't mean that as like there's no value judgment there of like it's a terrible thing and everything. It's just like it's something that's happened, I think, over the last hundred years or, you know, 80 years of Pan sort of starting to come to the U.S. And it's, you know, it's interesting now, 20 years out, when I was in your position in school, there was, I mean, I think in Ohio, maybe two, three steel bands in the entire state. You know, it was my high school and then the University of Akron. And then over 20 years, students graduate, they go off to start their own programs. And because the educational systems in the United States, like you start playing music in fourth or fifth grade, almost in every school in the United States, that's kind of like when it happens and where those education systems are really pumping when you inject anything into it, if it was like balinese gamelan or tabla playing or something it's just like steel drums because of cliff alexis other folks too but cliff alexis and ellie minette i think had two of the largest sort of impact moments in the united states especially in the Uni- in the education system and then now 20 years later you're looking out and you're like okay midwest now you can't throw you can't spit and not hit five steel bands in ohio um, and Texas, um, there's other places too. Like I, I you know, I, I don't want the East coast has a lot of really great educational programs. You know, Harvey Price at the university of Delaware has been there for a long time. NYU now, but Texas is another place that really, um, grabbed a hold of the steel drum idea and was like, let's, this is important. Let's put this in the system. And now it's like, there's huge mass steel bands coming out in Texas. There's steel bands everywhere. Same thing. You can't throw a rock and not hit five steel bands. I mean, for you for you coming up in this system, how much of that was clear to you that that was what was happening? Or how much of it now that you're sort of, you know, you're taking classes at UTT down in Trinidad and you're starting to plug yourself in directly to that culture and that sort of stream of information? Is there anything you're noticing as a student now? And pardon me, how old are you?
1: I'm 26.
0: You're, okay, so you're sort of, a, you're not a student anymore?
1: I, I am taking classes, but I'm probably like on my last leg of studenthood unless I go for a doctorate, which is a whole other conversation.
0: Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I was like, nope. I didn't even think about going to get my doctorate because I didn't, I just didn't want to go to school anymore. I was kind of burnt out, but I mean, that's no reason you shouldn't go get it. But um, I want to ask you like, what, is there anything as, as a 26 year old sort of coming up on being a former student and your foot is starting to dip into the the sort of professional non school world um for a while what are there any is there anything you're noticing um in the state of affairs in terms of the education system in in steel drumming that when you started working with people like Mia and smooth Edwards who are you know Leon smooth Edwards is like the horse's mouth I mean he ranged for Trinidad all stars yeah. for how long you know won several panoramas like he's a he's a beast like what is there anything you're noticing in terms of any disconnect or Things that like, oh, wow, we didn't talk about that at all, (laughs) you know, coming through University of Texas or wherever.
1: Yeah, well, I mean,
0: I think the biggest thing is just like
1: the historical context. Mm. I mean, there was, I don't know if you went to the National Society Steel Band Educators Conference. I did not know. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a good panel discussion. um, And, you know, Mia and Yuko were on that panel, as well as a few others. I don't want to go through every name, but... um, I am leaving out people, so go look it up if mm-hmm. you're interested. Um, but they really talked about like how you can bring the history and the culture authentically into your steel band. Um, and I think like the biggest common issue for everyone was just like, this is a performance-based ensemble, and how do I teach a musicology credit during that ensemble, and how do I do it justice? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do I do the ensemble justice by like, having them play you know, forty-five minutes every day, um, and so that's something that I feel like was actually handled very well mm. at McCallum. Um, you know, we worked with Liam. Ray Holman was there when I was mm. freshman. We brought in Jonathan Scales, um, Andy Norrell. Like we've worked with a lot of really awesome people, um, and so the distance from like the culture was not that far. Mm. Um, especially given how far it can be just like in central Texas. Yeah. Uh, But the, the thing that I've noticed is that like the story that I knew about steel band history was very like concise and like someone drew like a nice, neat straight line from the like late 1800s or, you know, 1497 to the late 1800s to now, whereas like, the first thing that we talked about in this history of steel band class is like, yeah, there's like five different histories for anything, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. everybody has an agenda. Like some people will say that like this person was the first person to do something because they were the first person to be seen by a journalist doing it.
2: Mm-hmm. Some
1: people invented something and didn't talk about it. And some people are lying. Like, everyone has a different reason to say what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're always like definitely threading the needle of like, what can I find that I can like qualitatively say? Like, I think it's a fair statement to say that Neville Jules invented the bomb tune. But that is after like seeing it in eight different places and seeing like accounts of the Minuet and G in Mm -hmm. 57 and being like, okay, I as far as I can tell, this didn't happen before. And like someone can and like might prove me wrong, mm-hmm. but like there's very few things that I feel comfortable asserting. It's like Taspo went to Britain in
0: 1951.
1: Like, that's there, it. Yeah. That's kind of all.
0: That. Yeah, no, I, I, it's interesting to me. I mean, one of the things that um, I've been trying to be more self-reflective of as a teacher and a player and, you know, I think, I was fortunate to get to work with cliff alexis real early on like when i was in high school the first thing he did was show me two scars on the back of his head from where cops beat him when he was a kid playing pan you know he was a he was a bad john you know he was a gang member and according to the cops and the upper class in trinidad when he was a child and that was the first thing he said to me you know like i'm trying to like when i go through my life the first thing i say to people is usually like hey how's it going nice to meet you like what are you into like you know i'm And as a seventeen-year-old kid meeting Cliff, I was like, "That was the first. Was the first time I had met ever met anybody who was not the same skin color as I was, and like was in a conversation with somebody trying to understand what they were about, you know." And I was like, "Okay, wow, that is crazy that that's the first thing he said to me, you know." Mm -hmm. And then. I get older and I start to learn about what police violence is and what oppression is. And I was like, and then I start to be like, you know, my synapses are like, like connecting back to that initial conversation. Like, okay. Oh, okay. That's what that was. Cliff was telling me about it. Hmm. Wow. How is that manifesting? How has that manifested in society? What has that done to populations of people in the United States? And we have George Floyd, we have all these things. And then, When I look at how that stuff historically contributed in this really awful way to the birth of Pan, which is a beautiful thing, you know, like history is messy and it's terrifying and it's awful and it's all of the things, but you're right in the sense, like the more I talk to people, the more I'm like, like, they're like, no, no, no. I mean, Cliff even had these arguments with me. He would get in arguments with me me about like what Ellie did and what Ellie didn't do who invented the harmonic, like who discovered, you know, Anthony Williams uh, with, with um, Pan Am North stars and um, you know, all of these things. And and you go back and you look at Pan Am North stars and you see, you see 1962, right? The first panorama they win with Dan is the man in the van. Anthony, Anthony Williams discovers in his messing around with tuning the harmonic. So his, the drums start to get brighter. the, the voices of each instrument start to like take a little shape, and then you hear the panorama the next year, uh, Mama, This is Moss by Lord Kitchener. The band sounds completely different. The arrangement sounds completely innovative, because now every instrument in the band has its own unique voice, harmonically speaking. So he starts to write for the basses. In one year, this whole th- like the panorama thing gets tipped on its head to being this homogenous sound. Yeah, there's different instruments. There's bass and stuff. There's no engine room. But then the next year, all of a sudden, you now have like nine distinct voices. Yeah. You know, then you can fast forward. You look at people like Jit Samaru. You look at people like Bugsy. Bec- it's, you know, because Anthony Williams rebuilt an entire steel band in one year, all of a sudden, now the arrangers have like, whoa, this, another palette upon which to, to paint and do their thing, you know? Anyway, it's uh, that, but I think the minute I would say that out loud to somebody like Cliff, Cliff might be like, "No, no, 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 no. that's not at all," <laughs> you know. And I don't know if they're right. I mean, I, I defer because I didn't grow up in Trinidad. I didn't have all the stories in my head, but I do think it's important, and it's part of the reason I'm starting this podcast with, with uh, Yuko, is to try to just document these stories and not be like, "This is the story," you know. Mm-hmm. But like, here's one version of it that. I've heard from blah, blah, blah. Here's another version of it. And then we're going to talk to folks like Concordis Cordis from, um, I think he's from Antigua. Um, what is the steel band culture like in Antigua? What's the history there? Like who brought Pan to Antigua? Like those sorts of things. I think I'm really, I just want to start piecing together as much of this messy puzzle as we possibly can. Um, but there's great, have you heard, um, do you know, Kim Johnson? Um,
1: yes, not, personally and not
0: well there's but. a a great book uh his called from tin pan to taspo i'm I'm sure it's crossed your path um it's really really great another one called the steel band movement by stephen stempley um is also really good just for folks um, but kim johnson he has another one called the illustrated story of pan which i think is out of print but i messaged him the other day and i think it's i think they're I, I
1: feel like i saw a picture the other day that was like our books are over there and it was like a circled like somewhere in Trinidad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, it's as I, I think it's important for students and teachers to inject this sort of the, the historical context and, and, and on a nuts and bolts level for me, I'm curious for you too. Like the engine room has been the biggest thing, like the feel of an American steel band versus the feel of a Trinidad or a Caribbean steel band. It doesn't have to be all Trinidadians, but like, that's the thing. When I went to Trinidad, I was like, the engine room, like I usually, I as a, as a teacher at NYU, I went for eight years teaching there. And the engine room is the last thing I always dealt with, because I felt mm-hmm. the pans were like that's where I got to focus. And my band just never felt really great. And then as soon as I started bringing in people like Jarian Williams and other drummers from Trinidad or Brooklyn, Sheldon Thwaites to come in and, and play. It's like everything else clicked in because I now know, or at least I know more about the engine room than I did before. I mean, is that something that's that's clocked for you as well?
1: Oh my God, for sure. So, I mean, a couple of things, I, I just like, every part of my brain wants to respond to that at once. Yeah, sure. You know, like the drummer, Soka, Andrew Bramont.
0: I don't actually. Andrew Beaumont or Bromont? Bromont. Bromont
1: okay. Uh, I think it's B-R-U-M-A-N-T. Everyone just called him Soka. So okay. that's how I know him. Um, if you've seen the Soka sticks, those pan mallets. Okay. That's Soka. Um, so I did the St. Vincent and the Grenadines panorama mm-hmm. back in 2014. Um, and not even like so much the engine room, like all of the accompanying instruments. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for saying accompanying instruments. Back, you could say set.
0: background. I mean, background yeah. is, is a common term in Trinidad. Yeah.
1: The, the non drum set engine room. Players um, like we were. Her saying, "I guess I was there for two weeks, maybe like five days before Panorama, or like three days before Panorama." Soka shows up. He's got to like be at all the rehearsals until the show. That first rep with him on the kit just like changed my entire world. It's like it. It didn't matter what he did like his time and his feel was so good Mm -hmm. and it like magnetically made everyone around him play so much better Mm -hmm. and then that made every hand player play so much better like it was incredible um Mm -hmm. and then i think like what's really interesting because i've done the same thing like i've taught steel bands where it's just like all right write notes right rhythms and then like two days before the concert it's like all right don't forget to move don't forget to like have fun, yeah. Like we're gonna go in the dress rehearsal, and the head percussion professor here is going to tell you guys that you're not moving or like doing enough. And so, like, just be prepared. And then we get in the dress rehearsal, and the first comment from the head percussion professor is like, "You guys need to move and look like you're having fun." And it's like that is the extent of engine room mm-hmm. uh, detailing, mm-hmm. uh, especially in these like I mostly taught sea lance like. People that aren't percussionists mm-hmm. or like drummed a little bit but aren't music majors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's really interesting is like if you think about the history of the orchestra, it's like we had these pitched instruments and we developed all of this harmony and voice leading. And then at some point, we added drums. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the way that we tend to teach steel band is like we have all these notes and all these rhythms, and then we add drums um, because, like, Pitch and harmony are such a high priority, but if you think about like where the pan came from, it's like you've got your drumming, moving to tambu bamboo, moving to iron, and it's like all right, you've got iron, you've got all these rhythms that are super important, this like eight voice like braided iron counterpoint, and then you add pitches, and then you make tunes out of it. Mm -hmm. But like, I feel like I have not thought enough about the fact that like these double seconds that I play like are our, our big tuned break drums. Yeah.
0: That was, um, some, that was something that Andy Norrell really kind of cracked open for me a little bit, just thinking of the percussion, thinking of the steel band as a percussion ensemble rather than a, than a you know, it's all, it's all engine room. That's that's the like all the rhythms that were played on the biscuit tins or the cutter and and Tambu bamboo or the bottle and you know the rum bottles. Like if you go back to listen to old Iron uh, Lord Invader tunes, there's a great one called "Me One Alone" and you um, off of uh, there's an album called Calypso Awakening. Oh no, sorry, uh, Lord Invader Live in New York is this one album, and, and it's just a he's just a chant while well singing one thing, "Me One Alone" on the ocean, you know. And there's just bottle and spoon accompaniment with like one drummer and some shock shock, and it's awesome. And then Mm -hmm. you there's another one that's a calypso version of the same tune, but with one break drum, some shock shock, a drummer, and then like clarinet, piano, like he harmonizes it. And to hear the two versions back to back is like you can hear literally the transition from bottle and spoon into like soca or into calypso music. And um, it is interesting. I think it is true that the steel drum in its natural evolution went from straight percussion to pitched instruments and then the straight percussion kind of got back in the mix after I mean the first panorama didn't have a drum set right like a lot of those early panoramas were just like hi-hat and maybe kick or something um some shock shock a drum like a a tom-tom player or something in the background or a scratcher there was no drum set, you know, that came. And I don't remember who the drummer is that sort of was the, um, there's a great podcast called The Engine Room with Larnell Lewis. Yeah. And uh, he did a chat with Sheldon Thwaites, Earl Brooks Jr., and Jerian Williams. And they talked about all that. I mean, they, they listed all these drummers that sort of were like, oh, this is the first guy, uh, something Bailey, I think, uh, Richard Bailey. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting, but I agree with you that now, like, Focusing on that, the engine room as the thing that gels everything is something I, I got to later than I should have.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, I, I'm i still living in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm moving at, like, over the summer to start a new job um, in North Carolina.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm, like, I'm still in Lincoln. The steel band at Nebraska is playing Pan 2000 this mm-hmm. year. Um, and so, like, I know that at some point I'm going to go jump in on iron. Um, and I was talking to Dr. Hall about it. He's like, yeah, like, I mean, you could play double seconds if you want. I was like, no, I want to play iron. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Okay, cool. I want somebody like, who knows what's up on that part, which I, the more I think about like, you know, there's no like prestige level, like, especially in Panorama tunes. like tender parts are hard. Like guitar parts are hard. Bass parts are hard. Double second parts. are like, there's no easy part mm-hmm. in there, but like, I feel like the iron is such a long neglected role in that ensemble that is just like as difficult, if not like more taxing and difficult than the drum set part. In the same way that like if you're playing the quarter notes and pieces on wood, like it's that same feeling of like I am responsible for everything right now.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, well it's and it's also in my experience drilling steel bands in Brooklyn and in Trinidad, the, the thing that is often in the engine room, the thing that is plugged in last is often the iron. At least in the bands I've worked with. That that may not be the case. Other bands, you know, have different cultures and whatever, but like the iron player is always like the last person to sneak into rehearsals and, and get set. And I have tried to make a point to to pay more attention to the irons in particular because They're the loudest instrument in the band. If they play a note out of place, everybody hears it. You know, a a guitar player hits a wrong strum. You know, you can get away with a few of those, but an iron player going clang, like in a hole, oh man, like Mm -hmm. you just lost the panorama. Like it doesn't matter how good your band played. And so to get folks in the engine room to really take that part seriously, yeah, it's hard because I think there is a feeling of like, it's like being the, the triangle player in the orchestra you're just sort of like 342 343 and then you go ding and the conductor's like you were bar early and you're like 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 you know that's the weight of that one note is insane and you don't feel like that's that important but because it is so crucial and, and concise your sound and what your role is you know your role on the iron is to play ease and us or Doubles or something some some variation, and just lock in with with the drummer and never waver and get all the hits, and you've got to know the tune and oh wait, you can't hear the tune because all you hear back in the engine room is Aah! you know just like white noise coming at you like I can understand why that's tricky, so don't give up it's it's actually harder than playing the melody, I think mm-hmm. well uh Lewis, I want to ask you um you have been doing a lot of solo playing um, too. I've been po- seeing you post online um, yeah. and in particular doing some stuff in the contemporary realm. And you posted something the other day about, um, you know, given the, the history of contemporary or of uh, like Western classical music in Trinidad and Tobago, like um, what's, what, what's been going through your head whenever you choose a solo piece. I know that you're playing the Paul Lansky uh, piece Pandemonium right now. And so good luck to you. I hope you're, doing a lot of drugs and, and learning, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how to survive that piece. Cause I barely did. Um, yeah. But what, 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 what's been your goal with sort of learning contemporary music or, or doing, you were doing a transcription of Minuet and G or something the other day or Chopin, I think is what it was.
1: Yeah. The Chopin, Nocturne. Yeah. For Opus nine, number two. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is for me, classical music has just like always been part of fan playing. Mm-hmm. Like, I went to a high school where it was just like the final exam for the steel band class was like you played an A2 on pan. And so it was like just a short like Bach violin, something. I don't remember what, but just like, you know, you had to learn Bach on pans. And then it was like, oh, you're going to play marimba solos, you can play a timpani solo, you can play a multi percussion solo. You've got a couple pan solos in the cabinet. And it's like, I was like, I like playing pan a lot more than I like playing timpani. Let me (laughs) dig those out of the cat. Um, So I did that. I was playing, like, Liam Teague solo's Mm -hmm. when I was in high school. Um, I started off with, like, Paul Ross's Little Ryan when I was a freshman. Um, And at a certain point, which was probably, like, after my freshman year of college, I was like, I have run out of pieces to play. (laughs) I am hounding every publishing company I can find and, like, I don't see anything
2: mm-hmm.
1: anywhere. Um, and it was tricky then because like I played lead and seconds, but I didn't have any instruments of mm-hmm. my own.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so like if there was a piece that had notes out of range, I was like consistently, I was like, oh, this is one more piece that I like, can't even play. Um, so I was like, you know, I'll just commission one of my friends, um, Marcus Rippa, if you know him. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'll just commission one of my friends. So I met at this Marimba thing he plays pan, he writes music, I'll see if he'll write me a piece. Um, and so I commissioned a like nine and a half minute, like four movement tenor pan solo from Marco. And it was like one of my favorite things that I had played by that point. Um, and I was like, I'll write music for myself to play with my friends because I want, I like writing music and I need more things to play. So I started writing solos and writing like duets with marimba or piano or flute. And I was like, this fun because I play music with my friends Mm -hmm. Um, and like my musical upbringing like I didn't grow up listening to Soap and Calypso in the house Mm -hmm. you know I listened to my older siblings wind ensemble concerts and I listened to like Bach and Keith Jarrett like on the piano but Mm -hmm. like not not any of the things (laughs) that we've been talking about Um, and so part of it is like a cultural appropriation issue of like i would not play Soka or calypso as well as people who actually know that music and i am constantly like trying to study that music and like learning the canon of works learning who the important people are learning like i think this the social commentary aspects of calypso are like totally fascinating and i love mm-hmm. just like reading about tunes like rum and Coca-Cola and like what the original lyrics are and what got sung and sold in the United States. That's Mm -hmm. just like a dumb and ridiculous, like a misappropriation of that tune. But uh, like I am a classically trained percussionist. I have seven years of college in that area. Mm -hmm. And so I like, I love this instrument and I have a really deep respect for its history and like, am still just like, trying to absorb what it means that like this instrument came out of everything that it did. But like, I feel like I wouldn't be, I would both like not authentically be my musical voice. If Mm -hmm. I was playing a bunch of classic Calypsos arranged for solo double seconds rather than like pandemonium, Mm -hmm. because pandemonium is like where my brain is at. I spent like Lansky lives in my brain are free Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) in my competition. And I was learning three moves last year Mm. when we got locked down and I lost Marimba access. Um, And it's like, there are people who can do it better than me. And like, that should be their careers and I'll do this. Um, And then like, I really do not like participating in the commodification of like the United States created, island fantasy that is how people think of trinidad up and hawaii um and so like if i am playing pan in like a farmer's market or in like a bookstore then i'm just playing like nice agreeable classical music um because it still fits the setting but like people aren't going to come up to me and be like jimmy buffett i'll be like no like Clearly, that's not what I'm doing. You know, like, I, there's just like, those are all the factors that go into it. Well,
0: as you're, as you're talking, I mean, I'm have, listen, I'm, this being, year being locked inside the house with like no human contact other than Zoom has got, had me inside my head about like, all right, what are my rules? Like, what are the things I ethically feel bound to the older I get? Um, am I, have I played Jimmy Buffett tunes? Hell yeah. Hundreds yeah. and hundreds and hundreds of times, Lewis. Hundreds of times I've played Margaritaville. And I was talking with Yuko the other day, and I was like, I think I I can't anymore. Like that's and she's like, Well, Robbie Greenwich would never say that. Yeah. You know, he he's been playing Margaritaville for how long with Jimmy Buffett? And, you know, so now, again, like, I don't think I can be like, well, he's playing Margaritaville, so I'm going to go do it. And that's OK. Right. 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 It's like, well, he's also Trinidadian. He's won panoramas. He's a legend in the field. Like there's he's earned yeah. cred that I haven't. Um,
2: yeah, right. really wants. yeah.
0: But on the other hand, um, I think if you said out loud to Robbie, I, I don't know Robbie at all, but I'm going to guess if you were just like, I think. Margaritaville is cultural appropriation. He'd probably just be like, okay, whatever. But that paid for my house in Trinidad, (laughs) you know, like, um, so, and I'm not, I'm saying this a little bit in jest and I don't have a good answer for myself. Like, I mean, I've been thinking about this a long time. Um, where for you are your, are your, I mean, you mentioned like, you don't want to participate in the commodification that the U S like the sort of the view of like one yeah. you know 30 years ago 20 years ago if you ask people where where steel drums were from what country nobody would have said trinidad and tobago yeah. nobody would have even known that that's the that those are sister islands somebody might one person might have been like trinidad but like it's not only now that people even say the words trinidad and tobago together <laughs> you know because of awareness now that it's a they're, they are a country together and Tobago, to, bag, to, to would get really upset whenever you leave out Tobago when you say those two countries together. Um, but you know, like what is your response? I mean, do, do you th- feel like you have a responsibility to change that mindset in any way in a positive way? Like, how do you feel like you can actually change that mindset?
1: Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I try to do is like, I don't know, there's a lot of really easy no's, right? Like, the no Hawaiian shirt thing is, like, a very clear line in the sand that I can draw just based off of, like, the realities of geography and the, like, multiple thousands of miles that are between Hawaii and Trinidad and Tobago. Um, The, I, I am, like, still figuring out the least clunky way to, like, present the information. Like, when I go and play concerts and I haven't played a concert in a while so I haven't gotten a chance to try it out but just Mm -hmm. like I I need to talk more about where the instrument comes from Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know it's like now I've like snucked into my bio where it's like I like Lewis specializes on uh, steel pan the national instrument of Trinidad and Tobago just like little things that are
2: Mm.
1: Trinidad and Tobago Um, and then like the scholarship that I'm doing on like like we were talking about that Chopin arrangement. Mm -hmm. The other really neat thing is that like, not only has my relationship with Pan always included classical music, just in terms of like the music that I've gravitated to, but like classical music has basically always been a part of Pan's history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, you know, you think about the program for Caspo, and right now I'm trying to research like when the name of like steel orchestra came in Mm Um, and how we use the term steel band and steel orchestra interchangeably, Mm -hmm. um, and bomb tunes and like how that's classical music that's kind of turned Calypso. And then even like with Panorama, it's these Calypsos that are turned classical through all of the like very recognizable, like it's basically a sonata form. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I'm also curious too, there's uh, is it Ross Shorty, um, also like his the Indian influence that he brought to the table that that sort of pushed Soca into calypso music and made that like that genre come up like that's also a really fascinating in terms of like who the patient zero is of like who started calypso music like I think I'm hearing more and more that like you need to look to Ross Shorty like his the Indian influence on soca music and the way that changed the feel and then you know all that stuff it's it's really really interesting but not really documented that well so
1: yeah yeah so i I don't know it's like i know that my influence is not big enough that like if i start playing pandemonium and i start doing um like i did a concerto a couple years ago that i wrote for double seconds with orchestra like Mm -hmm. i cannot change the entire world and say like the pan is now a classical instrument in the United States. And like, we are going to treat it as such and it will be respected and people will take a semester of applied lessons on it. Like they do on Marimba. Like I can't actually do that. And if I never play Margaritaville, like people are still going to play Margaritaville. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am really just trying to think about like, what is the maximum that I can do from like, what do I feel good about doing? Um, And I, I do that in like, everything I do. Like I play in a chamber group right now um, that's mostly like grad students and alumni at the University of Nebraska.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't think I've pitched a single piece by a white guy in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um and I would say like 80% of our rep is white guys. Um, and then I suggested the other 20% of the rep. Um, because with people from like an orchestral conducting background and a classical pianist and a classical clarinetist flautist, like the number of inputs is like overwhelmingly the historical, like Western canon. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I know that I cannot stop this ensemble from playing Copeland. You know, we put in a grant a year and a half ago to play Appalachian spring. We're going to play App spring. Um, and like, that's good. Cause that's a good piece. And it's like, how, how far can I shift the Overton window of like playing living composers and like people who reflect a wider community than just like ni- like early 1900s mm-hmm. French guys, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a lot of what we do as a like small chamber group. So I don't know. It's like, I feel the same way about pan that I do about chamber music as I do about solo percussion, which is just like, Find music that I like. Find the people who's who the people who I want to support, Mm -hmm. especially like for living composers, material ways of like buying their music and putting out recordings and like giving them programs to send to ASCAP. Um, uh, that's a very long-winded answer, and I don't remember where we started.
0: No, we were talking about cultural appropriation and sort of how you like where your role is and and in sort of like what your what your ethical responsibility is. Um. You know, I've played, I've gotten paid. I mean, when I was in school, I played gigs three times a week at various places for parties. And, you know, you get asked to play Stairway to Heaven and, you know, the Little Mermaid song and like all those things. And I will say that I think in those moments, I wasn't a very good, um, I want to say advocate, but I wasn't a very good historical advocate for what I was doing at a bat mitzvah for somebody's daughter, you know, like playing a pool party. Also, I feel like in hindsight, I don't know what my, what my role was at a pool party. Like, what is my role? Um, do I just never take pool party gigs because I don't feel like I can actually affect, you know, change. I don't know, but what I can do at those pool parties is get way better at my instrument. And get better at improvising and playing chord changes or whatever, because most people aren't even paying attention to you at those things. You know, it's their, their daughter is getting check after check after check at their bat mitzvah, you know, and I'm just over there strumming around creating atmosphere. Now, do I want to do that my whole life? No. Um, I hate flowered shirts. I got, I got fired from one gig because I had a Cuban shirt, like a, just a mono colored shirt with like the little piping down, down the chest here, no flowers or anything. And, I got told afterwards that I'd never get rehired again because I didn't wear, I didn't follow the contract,
1: yeah. and was I didn't that raise. Like or... No, no,
0: no, 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 no. This was this was just in the freelance scene when I first moved to New York. Um, I was playing, and so it was. I mean, we treated it like a full time gig, but I wasn't. We weren't making any money, and so I was freelancing on the side. And I did a wedding in New Jersey on the beach, and you know, I, I thought I looked presentable, but I also felt like. I was starting at that time to work with bands in Brooklyn and seeing just having more experiences in, you know, Caribbean spaces and being like, okay, maybe the flowered shirt feels a little bit like, you know, token or something like I'm putting on a costume to pretend like I'm from and I like it's the same thing I get I was handed up one of those those hats with the dreadlocks sewn into it <laughs> you know I was handed one of those at a gig and was like here this will this will create an atmosphere and I was like and I just yeah. I, I hung it on the side of my pan and then eventually moved it to the ground and then moved it to my case and like eventually got it out of the way but you know but then this last year we went to Trinidad and what is the uniform for phase two pan groove Flowered shirts and straw hats, <laughs> and I was like, "Come on, Bugsy, you're killing me." I felt like I had a rule, and now you're, you dressed your whole band—white, black, and different. Like everybody's wearing flowered shirts and, and straw hats, and I was like, "All right, well, maybe my rule needs an—I need an addendum to my rule. Only in Trinidad, under the direction of Bugsy Sharp, will I wear a flowered shirt." I guess I need to adjust my rule, you know, moving forward. But um, anyway. You
1: know, I think, like, that's a – you know, you talk about, like, now that you're working in the Caribbean community, you're like, oh, maybe they wouldn't like this. You know, like, if if you just make your rule, like, don't do anything that you wouldn't do in front of a group of Trinidadians, like, that's probably a good starting place.
0: Like, yeah, but even that, I mean, the thing – that this is the thing that's so tricky, like – and this is why I hate social media is that the nuances and any minute you make a rule and start drilling down on that rule, you're eventually going to hit bedrock and you have to take your drill up and go somewhere else. Like I can have a rule about flowered shirts or colored prints. Let's say that for example, I went to a wedding in Trinidad four years ago with my wife for Jerian, Jerian Williams, Kendall's cousin <laughs> was getting married and I went down there and a friend of mine, Shelly George made me a beautiful shirt to wear it's like i'm going to the caribbean for a trinidadian wedding i'm not going to wear my like my vest that i wear on stage with so percussion you know like like what so i just said shelly what what do you think i should wear for this like i want you to dress me because she's a stylist she's a she uh, fashion designer she's an amazing badass guitar player like in the steel Band. so she makes me this shirt that's gorgeous and i go to trinidad and I wear this shirt. I play at the wedding. It's like bright African prints. And Lewis, I, I I copped to this to Shelley. I felt uncomfortable. It wasn't her fault. I felt like yeah. I was doing something that wasn't me, or, or that wasn't mine. You know. Here's the thing. I took the shirt off halfway through the wedding because I felt uncomfortable, and I blew the armpits out. That was part of it too. You know, <laughs> I was putting my my pants away and I raised my arms and they just went. Pew, pew, and um, had gained a little weight since she measured me for the shirt. And. I came back to the wedding with my normal shirt on, or my my shirt I felt more comfortable, not normal. The shirt I felt more comfortable in. And everybody, we were the only white people at the wedding. Every single person was like, where's your shirt? Like, it oddly was, it felt to me like now I had done the opposite thing. Like, I had offended somebody because I felt like it was clear. So, like, I cared about it. (laughs) my intent was clear. I think everybody in the room knew I was like wanting to show respect. I wanted to be, I wanted to show respect to this culture that was welcoming me in. And they all read that and they're like, cool, you know, and I took the shirt off and I got more shit for taking the shirt off than I did for wearing the shirt, you know? And so, then I start to ask myself, am I more afraid of my white friends calling me out for cultural appropriation? Or am I more afraid of my black friends calling me out? And I think the older I get, I'm getting more afraid of my white friends than I am of my Caribbean friends in terms of the rules that I set for myself, you know? Um, Anyway, all that's to say, like, I don't, I think I don't even have an answer anymore about the flowered shirt, but it's just, it's striking to me the more I get in the mix and the more I learn and the more I become close to people that your intent is absolutely the most important thing. If you're just genuine, most people, most people, of course, there's some folks who are not ever going to think that you're doing the right thing. But in my experience, it's just been like, they just are like, what are you doing, dummy? Go put that shirt on. I was like, well, I blew the armpits out. They're like, I don't care. You know, the number of people who were just like, go put the shirt back on. Anyway, just to say, it's uh, it's that, those are things I'm learning. And no matter what my instincts are, sometimes I'm usually doing it because of a way I feel, not because of a way I'm actually being perceived. Yeah. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm curious for you, working on Paul Lansky's piece— you know, I started commissioning works for Double Seconds and Lead Pan when I was in grad school and made a point to talk to people who didn't commission people who had zero relationship to the instrument because I was really curious what people who didn't bring any sort of, um, not ideology, but idiomatic approach to the instrument. Like there are just things that, because you and I are double second players, you know, that major seventh chords, like you can just rip those off and it makes you sound amazing, you know, but like you're, you're like, I'm doing the easiest thing I can do on this instrument or chromatic scales look really awesome, but it's one of the easier things we can do. I kind of wanted to avoid that a little bit. And so people like, David Lang wrote a concerto part for me that has double seconds in it. Paul Lansky, Mark Danziger's um, Oriana Webb, who was a friend of mine in school, wrote a little, a a piece. Um, Paul's was the first one. Well, Dan Truman wrote a piece called Rink for me. That's also, it's three movements, crazy hard, has like a hi-hat and a kick drum. Have you heard that piece?
1: Yeah, I've heard, I've listened to your,
0: Yeah. It's like a piece that I feel like is in a time capsule that in like 15 years, I'll actually be able to play it live. (laughs) Like it's so hard that I just, you know, um, a a lot of overdubs on that recording. Um, but it was, it's important. It's a beautiful piece, but Paul's piece was like the first piece for me that was like, okay, this is playable, but oh my God, Mm -hmm. I have to shed so much. Like what, what for you were the biggest things jumping into this piece that, um, sort of popped out to you as maybe new things for the instrument that you have to deal with.
1: I mean, so this, I'm coming back to the piece now. I played it my first year of grad school. It was like the first piece that I walked into my lesson with Dr. Hall and he was like, yeah, we, let's pick a piece I'm going to work on. Um, You've been doing a lot of double seconds. Uh, Why don't you just like play one of these pieces? Like, we have Pandemonium in the library for some reason. It just showed up there. Hmm. Um, And so, I, yeah, I think, like, the, the thing about it was I had never played solo music that was so tangly mm-hmm. and, like, so involved. Like, I, we were talking about Lickety Licks, but, like, that one is just everywhere. Um, and it's the kind of thing that makes a lot of sense on a keyboard um, because you've got, like, your melody up here and then all of these like squiggly chromatic bass lines down here and when that manifests on double seconds and like the middle of the second page you're like it, like both hands are equally participatory mm-hmm. in every line and you're trying to voice out the high notes and you're trying to bring out a chromatic line and you're trying to like play dynamics which is already hard mm-hmm. <laughs> on pan mm-hmm. um, and it, it's it really like took me, a couple months of like, I would practice four bars at a time. And then I would just like sit on the ground and try and absorb. Like <laughs> I, I really spent, I still get like the memories on my phone and it's like three years ago. And it's like on the ground, looking up at the pants.
0: Um, well, that that third, so, the, the Liggety licks, like working backwards, Liggety licks for me, I is, is like, it does a thing. Like if I was writing an etude for pan to help people, Keep one hand in one drum and one hand in the other, and really learn where the relationships are between fourths and fifths between mm-hmm. your two hands. Like there's so many. If you just if you took all the double stops, all the fourths and the fifths, and deleted every other note from the third movement from Ligeti licks, you would just have bum-bum, 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 like constant chromatic movement, but all fourths and fifths. And it's like that is a thing that doesn't happen in pan writing that much. Like uh, sometimes, you know, in panorama stuff, you'll have a lot of those double stops, but it's like short bursts, but for three minutes straight, <laughs> it really cracked my brain open. And I had, I definitely was thinking of the thing in two quadrants and like, Oh, okay. If I just do this, that's always going to get me a fourth. And if I do this, it's always going to get, Oh, Oh, okay. Like, and yeah, it's just like a weird Gordian knot that just keeps winding back on itself. <laughs> and you know,
1: yeah well, I think like the tricky part about that for me is like now that I'm going back to it and a lot of the muscle memory is gone, I'm relearning some of those trickier bars and saying, like, all right, what is my left hand doing? It's playing these five notes in a row in like this order It's like mm-hmm. all right I, can, I I don't like it, but I can deal with it um, and so I think that's been what I've been trying to do, and then also just like, I think the first time I got I played it, I was so absorbed in like I have to hit every note my hands are moving all the time and now that i'm back to it, I'm it's like this this beat could breathe this could take a little bit more that, mm-hmm. like, like there's so many moments and like opportunities that like it should it's such a cruel piece because it sounds so effortless if you're not playing it <laughs>
0: yeah well and the thing that with in my workshopping with paul um and i don't know if this will help or hurt you i mean paul was very much in favor of like he's worked on computer music most of his adult life and has only in the last 15 years really been investing in humans and so the way so and the way I've been approaching music and panorama, like there's not a whole lot of like Roboto and panorama music. Everyone, I think there's like three panoramas I can think of maybe off the top of my head that have any sort of tempo change in them, you know? And so it's just not part of my practice. So when I would learn these pieces, I was just like, I wouldn't just turn the metronome on and play for Paul, but I really wanted the grid to be clear. And so Ooh. I had very little Roboto, a little bit here and there getting in and out of fermatas or something. But Paul was like, Man, this needs to swing more and like really take your time here. And it was like he was all about that human sort of just like injecting a little bit of human in there and then seeing like where you can. And so some of those harder phrases, I would sort of put a little bit of air in them, mainly in the first movement I found in Cakewalk, because that one, that one to me was, I think, the hardest of the three. L- Liggety Licks is like hard just because like once you start your hands moving, you just never yep. get to stop. Panamonia or cakewalk you have some moments where of stasis where you're kind of like okay what's coming next and then it's like and I you know and it doesn't lay well it doesn't lay like a panorama does sometimes like he's not thinking of those chromatic lines and the melodies on top of it in the way that Bugsy might you know yeah where there's a there's a flick of the wrist that Bugsy's done 70,000 times that's always going to get that same sound you know and then everybody in the group can go you know but Paul's not, he didn't care about that. He's just like, what does this sound like? Which is why I was curious to talk to people like Paul who have no relationship. Like what is the thing they're going to ask me to do that pan players might not ever think of because we have lived with this instrument. And I, you know, that, that includes people like Kendall Williams. He's one of my dearest friends and he can play the instrument inside and out. He still has limitations when he, there's things in his head that are like tricks and crutches and things that he's done his whole life. And so with Paul, I feel like that first movement, he really took a lot of like that chromatic influence, but st- stuck his own. And he does this on Rimba too. It's not just Pan, where Paul's instincts don't always sort of manifest the most idiomatically comfortable music.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, it's just such a neat piece. It's such a good addition, uh, the repertoire. And I definitely, I've commissioned pieces from PAM players. I've played a couple pieces by Jonathan Scales. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people who have had a little experience on the instrument and then like comp students at Nebraska who knew nothing about the instrument. I just like talked to them about pan a little bit and then they got going. And it's really interesting to see the range and like some of the things that people ask me to do. I think the hardest like Thirty seconds of music that I did was like four mallet, like a lot of chords, and then like these embedded, like kind of double stop sixteenth note lines, with like a continuous like uh, rim on the first beat, skirt on the last beat of every measure, Mm -hmm. and like mixed meter, so it was always in a different place. Mm -hmm. And depending on the notes that you were playing, it had to be like on a different pan, Um, and. I'll send you like an Instagram message or something with that clip. Cause yeah. it was the most bonkers. Like <laughs> of music of my life. Um, and after that, I was like, I'm going to start asking people to edit a little bit more. Cause I did do it as like, you know, how far can I get with like just what the composer wants to write with like how, what of this is like editable to like make it sound a little better or like make it, really, like, come to life on the pens, but, like, if they write something hard, I'm going to stick it up and deal with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, this, that's, as a as a collaborator and a commissioner, I mean, those are, that's some of the things that, again, ethics come into play. Like, where do you feel like you can tell somebody? Like, do you ever feel like, if you were working with, with Smooth Edwards, that you could ever be like, I don't know if this works.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely not,
0: ever. But, do you think he would ever, what I know of him, I'm positive he's been in all-stars yard at some point tried something out and somebody he trusts is like, bro, that doesn't work. And he's like, all right, we'll try something else. You know, like maybe you didn't, maybe you don't see that. Maybe it's done off to the side. Maybe it's done on the phone at night after rehearsal. Like, I don't know, but he's a really nice guy who is very successful. And what I know about very nice, successful people, including Boogsy sharp is that they take feedback from their friends and people Mm -hmm. who they know really well and who play their music a lot. And we've played Paul's music a lot. And Paul, Paul falls into the category for me where I actually have to keep him at bay. I actually have to keep him from editing stuff because there was one one passage in, in Cakewalk where the pattern starts on a G sharp, I think. And it's like, bah, 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 like all the way down or something. And I kept fucking it up. And Paul was just like, well, do you want to change the G sharp to a G natural? I was like, Paul, that changes the harmony of the chord. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but it's okay with me. Would it make it easier on you? And I was like, yeah, but, and he's like, well, let's change it. And I actually was like, no, Paul. So I'm sorry if there's a passage in there that's really hard for you. It's probably not my fault. But I was like, no, Paul, like I'm not just, don't give up that easily on your G sharp. That's what I, I wanted to say. But, but Paul's desire was for me to enjoy playing his piece. Um, like when you're working with, with composers, have you, f- I mean, what has your experience been there? Have you found success or have you made mistakes? Like telling somebody to edit something that maybe they shouldn't have?
1: Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to think through very quickly all the pieces that I've done. Um, I don't know. Cause like, cause I compose too. And when I play something that I've written, it's, it's liquid. Like nothing is holy to me. Mm. I, we're playing a piece right now in my chamber group that's scored for Piero with electric guitar and vibes. Yeah. Um, and this is my vibraphone nice. because we're playing it. Perch and I can get these in my car, um, and so like now the entire part is for seconds, and like I've had to rewrite at, like most measures of my part because I'm just like no, yeah, this is what I meant here, and I'll just transpose this octave and I'll play the upper two notes of this four-mallet chord that like won't fit on this instrument anyway. So like for for myself, I'm just like constantly editing, mm-hmm. and you know there's a piece called Currents that I was playing that I think I finished, I like had a document in finale that was like, this is kind of how the piece goes. And then I did not finalize it until it had been recorded mm-hmm. or something. And I was like, well, people are probably going to want to play what's in the recording. Um, and so for like, for myself, especially if it requires like me to play mm-hmm. and, isn't putting anything on anybody else I'll change all the time
2: Uh,
1: and it's it really is just like same thing with the concerto like I rewrote the last minute of the piece just to like I was like well I can do it I have a month before the concerto competition I can totally I I can just change things up a little bit and give my accompanist a new part Um, because they tend to read everything anyways Mm -hmm. Um, so I knew it wasn't gonna be a huge deal for the person I was working with. But with composers I really do try to say like I don't know. I I try and give them honest feedback mm-hmm. where it's like this sounds bad now, but I can practice it and I'll get better.
0: Oh yeah, Alexis Lamb. Do you know oh, her? I uh not personally but I know of her.
1: Yeah. You you would really like her. She's just like a very thoughtful person. Mm-hmm. I've met her in the expo hall at PASIC one time and Mm -hmm. talked to her for about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I just like wanted to go back and keep talking to her. Um, I'll look her up. And she, she came to Nebraska last year and did a mini residency actually right before we quarantined, um, which has like, like that's the last time I like hung out with someone and went to a bar um, was after we did a concert of her, one of her pieces But she wrote this killer um, double seconds and tenor pan piece Mm -hmm. um, that just like, it's really beautiful and like a lot of like layered voice, like Bach keyboard kind of writing. Mm -hmm. And then just like some angsty stuff Mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, And so I feel like during that process, I was taking videos and I was like, this is very hard and i can practice it and it will be better and there are a couple of spots that i was like this will be a lot easier if i change these notes to be this like how do you feel about that um and some of them i think like the one thing that i really tried to veto she's like no i like it i like it exactly how it is you sound good
0: um yeah that's sometimes is the like you think you sound bad on something but a composer is okay with it and that's That's your problem to deal with, not theirs. If they're okay with it, then you have to kind of let it go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think some of it was like, there was a lot of like grace notes into like rolled chords. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I was like, there's no way that I can play this in time. She's like, yeah, I'm just like, make it extra out of time. and i will be fine. Just like play loud and aggressive. And that's more of what I want. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I feel better. You know, I, yeah. There's some responsibility that I was feeling that is not an actual responsibility, and that's nice to know.
0: Yeah, the feel the the phrase "it's totally doable" is the is I find myself saying more often than not in composer readings. You know, so gets asked to sight read stuff all the time, yep. and I'm often sight reading on pan in those contexts or vibraphone or whatever. But you know, there's stuff that comes up and I totally crap all over it. But I can look at it and be like, all right, that's going to take me 25 minutes to practice. I'll be fine. And then that's my job just to say to the composer, like, don't don't judge based off of what you're hearing. Like, it's totally doable. I just need to work on it. But four weeks later, after working with the composer, you gain more trust. If that thing that I thought only took me 25 minutes turns out to be like a seven-hour thing mm-hmm. because it's not possible and I've got it as good as I can possibly get it, then I'll say to the composer, totally judge based off of what you're hearing because this is as good as you're ever going to hear it from me. <laughs> you know, like, where my skill set is, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slay this as best I can for you. And then the, th- then the composer, also with the caveat that, like, 20 years from now, players are, you're already playing Pandemonium way better, faster, all the th- cleaner, all of the things than I ever hoped to, but the piece has been out for eight or nine years now. Like, This is what happens. Things get easier. Players get better. That's kind of what we're hoping for. So I also have to be like, but if you think it's awesome and it's close enough, you can keep it because eventually somebody will be able to play this, but not me, (laughs) you know, like those sorts of just being honest with composers and that leads to good discussions because then they're like, well, what would make it, what would make it flow for you? Well, if you took out these quadruple stops in this one spot. And I only had to use two mallets for the whole thing, and you just made those quadruple stops, double stops on tin cans rather than three tin cans. Honestly, then I can just drum. And then they're like, "Oh yeah, I didn't care about the triple stops." You're like, "Well, okay, great. That's the thing I spent seven hours on for God's sakes." Like, well, I wish, I wish I'd have had this conversation four weeks ago. Um, so anyway, things like that—it's a—it's a—it's a process. Like you have to build trust with somebody. You don't—you don't walk into the first rehearsal with Smooth Edwards and All Stars and be like, uh, "Mr. Edwards, I think this tenor bass line would be better if we left out the G sharp." Like, yeah, it's not the time or the place. Your time. Your your job is to shut up, play that really hard music, and then if eventually, at some point in the next twenty years, Smooth Edwards asks your advice, <laughs> then you can give it. <laughs> but you know, it's. When in Rome, you have to figure out which Rome you're in. I guess is the is the is the is the, is the, that's the hard part.
1: Yeah. No. And like that, like that collaborative process is way more fun to me than like playing what is on the page because yeah. once it's on the page, it's like, all right, I'm doing a job. The job is to you know play sorcerers like play these waterfalls. But so like when everything is still up in the air and like you can actively just like push a piece of music in one direction or another another like that is such a cool thing
0: yeah well maybe I wish Source's Apprentice was written on double seconds because all those major seventh chords would be super easier yeah. <laughs> boo, boo, probably just lays really well on double seconds
1: it really does did, did you see like I posted a little clip of that
0: I did yeah I, I every once in a while I'll bust out like the first three bars of Porgy and Bess just to you know just to show like it is a little easier on double seconds because you're you don't have to do that like you're just like it's all kind of like playing a panorama a little bit like like I wish George Gershwin would have written a panorama. Like I think that that would have been kind of rad. <laughs> but, well, hey Lewis, this has been really fun. I unfortunately have to let you go cuz I got to get prepped for this meeting at noon, but uh my policy with podcasts in general is um you're no longer required to respond to anything I put online. You can just reach out and be like, "Bro, let's chat. I I have a new project coming out. I'd love to shoot the shit, you know." So my door's always open. Um I appreciate you reaching out to do this in the first place because now i know what your voice sounds like i see you without a mask on i see you know this has been lovely and so i hope that we can do this in person um sooner than later and if you're ever in new york over labor day um you should come and play Mm -hmm. in a steel band
1: yeah it is like every panorama is on my to-do list like but new york especially like I, i will make it up there one day
0: you should and if you have you been to trinidad yet
1: not not for an extended period of time.
0: Okay. I mean if for no other reason than just to get to meet Mia and those folks in the room down there, um, that that would be worth it in and of itself. But if you ever go, I mean as you I mean, I don't need to tell you, it'll change your life in every way you could possibly imagine. So um, well, Lewis, this has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Good luck on Pandemonium. I am no longer contractually obligated to play it in, in, in real life. And if someone asked me, I would have a panic attack. So I'm glad you're picking up the mantle and running with it. Um, uh, when you get a final like version of it, I would love to hear the whole thing and, and, and then go feel bad about myself. I'll sit on the floor and take pictures of my pants from below once I hear you're playing. <laughs> uh, but it, before we, in the meantime, before we get together in person, whenever that will be, stay safe and healthy, and I hope to chat with you soon yeah,
1: thank you. So fun to like get to meet you and get to talk to you. And you know, you're not that old. You're like, Hey, I wouldn't even say like a generation removed from me, but like literally the stuff that you've done for the instrument is like making things that I'm doing possible. So,
0: well, it's your job to, I mean, it's somebody did that for me. And so Mm -hmm. Lewis, whenever you're 41, make sure you're doing that too. And, And get as many, be in the room with Trinidadians as much as you can. I think that will also blow open your practice and you'll feel a little bit, like I was saying, just a little bit less sacred about some of the rules I had growing up. Like the minute you get in the room down there, you realize like, yeah, there are rules, but the prioritization of what is important, community, being in the room with people, making something, it's kind of like none of your rules are allowed in that room like, yeah. There's a new set of rules. And that, that for me is it, like when people talk about safe places, they want to work and be in like, it's not a comfortable place. I mean, you have moments of discomfort in a pan yard, but to me, it's one of the safest places I've ever been in every aspect of my life. So uh, I really hope you get a chance to experience that. And if you ever want help or you're coming to New York or you're going to Trinidad and you want to hook up or get advice on where to stay or whatever, just don't hesitate. Okay.
1: Sure. Cool.
0: Thank All right, Louis, take care. Stay healthy. We'll chat soon. You too. Bye. Okay. okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. LiquidDrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. LiquidDrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Ypans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, and uh, so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, uh, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy want to learn more about the goings-on in pan in brooklyn check out paninmotion.com my good friend kendall williams uh, jerry guy trisha guy and uh, arisha john run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com check them out and finally, Alejandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango Chow Okay. Hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.